This is Growth Masters. The show for CEOs, CMOs, and anyone wanting to keep up with what's new in the world of business, marketing, and tech. You're in conversation with Robert Tadros. Hello, and welcome to Growth Masters. Joining me on the show today is the co-founder of Possible and Virtual, Alan Crabe. Alan is originally from Northern Ireland. He introduced crowdfunding to Australia and APAC back in 2010. The Possible and Virtual platforms were actually developed to help individuals, groups, entrepreneurs, and even social change makers engage with audiences and raise capital. Possible, which is a reward-based crowdfunding platform, has hosted over 8,000 successful creative endeavors. Virtual, on the other hand, which is a newly licensed equity crowdfunding platform, has helped Australian consumer brands and startups connect with investors online. Together, the platform has distributed over $100 million. I'm your host, Robert Tadros. Funny enough, I actually think we have met, we, we met about three years ago. Really? Is this a, a yeah. startup virtual movie? Was it? Yeah, uh, Winery Lane. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Cam Harris and Steve. Ah, Lynch. yeah, the space, yeah. They're, they were based in the space. Are they still there, yeah? They, so interestingly enough, we used to share an office together. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And we both started at the exact same time. We both started at Spaces in Richmond. And we, I ended up going, finding an office. And I said, boys, you know, we'd become pretty good friends. And um, I was you know, somewhat in, in, invested as well. Um, and I said, why don't we share an office? I've got half, of, half an office that I can give you. Yeah, we ended up sharing the office and a few too many wines. <laughs> yeah, that's, that could happen with a wine company. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, everywhere you went, every corner, there was a bottle of wine somewhere or a rack of wine, right? It's like, man, you just couldn't get away with it. You wouldn't want to be an alcoholic working for them. <laughs> but yeah, Alan, look, and I actually met you another time at Blue Rock. Oh, yes. You did a talk there in a little event. while ago as well. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. One of the Startup and Angels events, maybe? That's it. Yeah. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Angel yes. investors and uh, and startups. Yeah, yeah. You definitely are, are familiar. I've uh, yeah, I've been in the industry for quite a while. Yeah, so I'm not really surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that. I mean, I was I was actually intrigued to find that you brought um, crowdfunding to Australia, right? Or yeah. APAC in general in 2010. No, that's yeah, that's right. Like we we started um, back in 2010. This is before even crowdfunding was actually a concept. I say we were actually one of the first platforms to to use that coin word of crowdfunding actually for, for what we actually do. Some of the platforms didn't endorse that word, but uh, generally I think as a concept globally, people just, I think, recognized it as a concept and, that, and that's mm. pretty much where it kicked off, actually. So if you, if you rewind back to 2010, I see there were two things I think happening. Like you would have seen the concept of group buying happening yeah. at the time. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we, we spotted this, I suppose, opportunity um, because we were working with quite a lot of uh, artists at the time as a, as a concept. We said, we said it had been used in Europe, particularly in the music space. And we were actually, we had built a marketplace for artists and we thought we could adapt it, this music platform kind of pitch to find a, a more sustainable way to run this other marketplace that we were running at the time. And uh, that's pretty much how we get started. And uh, yeah, we, we launched a few campaigns and uh, yeah, it, it was pretty fortunate. I think we picked up on a trend which was very much around crowdfunding and group buying at that time. We actually were planning, we actually had a, made a decision. I remember one at the very early stages, okay, do we do a group buying site? 
or do we do what this other thing was? And we looked at Group Bang, even at that point in the US and thought, okay, this may not be as sustainable for yeah. these merchants or for these companies as, as maybe what crowdfunding would be more generally. So that's the decision we made. And we're, uh, yeah, we started doing crowdfunding as <laughs> or what it, what it would soon become, yeah. Was it the right decision? You know, asked, asked me that 18 months after some of the companies were getting acquired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they started group buying. Um, I would have said absolutely not. But to be honest, well, <laughs> in some ways, I could have been the first group buying website in Australia, but it was the first crowdfunding platform in Australia. So I don't know. I think there was more experienced people actually behind the first group buying website in Australia. And I doubt that mm. we could have actually jumped ahead of these guys looking back. So in hindsight, it would have been nice to be in that game and maybe had an exit very quickly. But uh, in retrospect, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed crowdfunding in that journey that I've been on. So oh, look, hindsight's a good thing, right? We'd all probably be billionaires and God knows true. what else. <laughs> right, true, <yeah. laughs> what, uh, I'm curious, right? Like why Australia? Um, for, for me, it was just, I think, circumstance, I think, at the time. Like, I was, like, you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally from here. So, I, I sort of... Right? Um, uh, from Ireland, sorry. Northern Ireland. Yeah, Northern Ireland, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think at the time, like, I was working for corporate. I had to, had to work for a, a company that would sponsor me at the time. And mm. I just worked, I was working on projects. I've always been sort of working on projects on the side and... I've seen this concept and I think we had been working on a, a marketplace for, for quite a while, I say. I think we've been working on a marketplace idea for visual artists uh, that was quite successful as a marketplace from one side. Maybe not so much the side that actually makes you the money, but um, <laughs> the, we, we, we decided, to, I think, to, to make a pivot or do something, something else that was more sustainable. And... Really, at that point, it was, it was more, I think, keeping the skills alive in terms of technology. Um, like I, I come from my background of development, and I wanted to keep them skills up. Um, so we were doing this as sort of as a side project, but at the same time, always ambitions, ambitions to, to create something that people loved using as well. So, yeah, we, I think in terms of Australia, it was just circumstance. Like I was working in Australia, sponsored here, and uh, yeah. I just wanted to start something on the side. So, and then as a lot of things happen, well, for, for some people, it, uh, it turns into a, to a full-time gig, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and am I, right to, am I right or wrong here? You've there's two sides to the business, right? You've got Possible and then you've got Virtual. Yeah, so, right? so Possible, yeah, was the original business that we set up um, in the crowdfunding space, but yep. um, we then became licensed as a, as a platform um, through Virtual which is pretty much a, a spin-off company from Possible Isley. So, yes. so it's a separate entity, a separate, uh, separate shareholder, separate team. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty much started out by the Possible, uh, the Possible team. And then they sort of spun out as a, as a completely different brand and service because it's very different to actually how, how Possible operates. And I know Possible's like hosted something like eight or 9,000 creative, you know, successful creative endeavors, right? Yeah, yeah, we've been around for a decade now. So yeah, we've hosted <laughs> thousands. Um, yeah, no, no, we've, we've uh, I think more recently, I think we've seen transaction volume um, top 75 million uh, wow. through the platform and, and posted, mm-hmm. yeah, as you say, I think it's it maybe eight and a half thousand, I think, successful campaigns through the platform. So 
yeah, it's, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a, a bit of a, a journey. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and, and, and on that, I mean, it's, a, it's a good segue, right? I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Let's shift gears, right? How has the journey been like, I guess, I mean, speaking, sp speaking from experience, you know, having my finger in a few pies and just the whole entrepreneurial journey in itself can be quite daunting. Right. And I, and I think it's, you know, there's a stigma around that it's a little bit glamorized. Hence, I use, I hate using the word entrepreneurship, right? And I'm like, you know, it's the cool new 2020, 2021, actually it's probably 2018, I would say 2019, 2020 word, right? It's the new buzzword. Oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm yeah. going to update my LinkedIn, LinkedIn title to entrepreneurship, but I don't think most people really understand what that comes with, right? And it's not all roses like everybody thinks it is. It's actually quite, can be quite daunting, very exciting at the same time and very rewarding. But I think, you know, what I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs about and a lot of business owners is it's not always as rosy as everybody thinks that it is, that it is right? I mean, I don't know, what's your, what's your experience been? Oh, I think anybody close to me knows that it's not rosy, yeah, in any way. Yeah. Like, I think one of the, the key things, I think, with, with starting something, unless you're, you're very, very fortunate and, and getting into a market, getting into an industry, have the right product at the right time, it's, it is, is, a, is a massive learning process. Um, and, and I feel like, I think you need to enjoy that. And, and I think I do enjoy it. I think I'm a, a thrill seeker. I think I like the highs and lows. Um, maybe not so much the lows, you should say, but um, <laughs> I, I, I must be, I must have, some, there's something not quite right where I like the struggle um, because it makes the highs much more enjoyable. But yeah. I think you, you have to sort of live that kind of life. Um, even when you become content, I said, you're, you're never content. <laughs> That's just you're never content. Yeah, yeah, I don't think never, anyone's ever content. <laughs> you're, 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 uh, you're, you're always driven by the experience. You're driven by the next threshold, the next goal, the next um, milestone. I think that's, you, you have to be prepared to just, that's, that's going to be your life, I think more generally. And mm. um, it does, depending on what time of the day, maybe you get me or the time of the week, um, it may <laughs> sound like a real struggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it, the, yeah, this is, it's just a, a constant learning and, and lesson and the lesson in, in running things. Like, are you a are you a gamer or have you ever enjoyed gaming? Um, I'm not a huge gamer, actually. Yeah, I'll tell you why I asked this question. Right, I mean, ne neither am I, but I, I see business as as a game, right? It's always you. It depends on depending on the personality that, that you are. You're always looking for how do I get to that next level, and then yeah. you get to the next level. And it's like, well, that was hard, but now it's pretty easy. So I'm going to go to the next one, right? And it never stops, and you just keep climbing levels, right? Um, hence, I use the analogy like it's, you know, it's, it's a game. It's like gamified, right? Um, some people are really good, really good at it. You know, some people can hack their way through very quickly. Others are just terrible at it, you know, and they just throw a towel in and give up. Um, but it's not for everybody, right? Not everyone's a gamer. And I just, I just love using that analogy. And I guess I was a, probably a little bit of a gamer back in, you know, when I was, when I was younger, but not, not, not anymore. But it's probably the, the closest thing that I can, I guess, associate or resonate with from a, at a, at a business level. Yeah, absolutely. I think particularly a strategic game. I think that's probably... Mm. And, and the thing is, if you're, if you're too strategic, you may uh, not be focused on like the day-to-day -to, -day to meet, and, and meet targets and, and be successful. So yeah, it's, it's a constant balancing act, I reckon. Like uh, particularly if you're very early stage, like I think for anybody that's, that's been successful, I think it's, it's very much down to the team that they've been able to attract or to build. Mm. 
uh, in the early stage, it's just being able to focus and get things, focus your, your time and efforts in the right things and, and maybe have insight into things that um, give you a bit of an advantage, if that makes sense, particularly if you know an industry well yeah. to, to sort of get ahead. So, oh, anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very no, complicated subject, you know. <laughs> it's a very interesting point, right? Because I'm, I've, I've always been of the, of the mindset that focus on what you're very good at and delegate what you're not good at, right? Because I think the other point of this is entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs, you know, most successful people tend when they first start to take on everything they can, right? Because it's like, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done right. And there becomes a point in time where you realize that you're actually probably doing more harm than you are good, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and, 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 I, and I think, I, I believe anyway from experience that the, the time, the minute you find or the moment that you recognize where that point is, that you admit that I am not good at this and I need to give it to someone that is, I think is the time that you excel and, 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 and go from strength to strength. That's my own personal experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think in the early days, there is a, there is a balance of knowing how your business grows, I think, and, and how yeah. you measure that and, and, and actually build for it. But yeah, you're right. Like as soon as, if you want to scale the business, um, particularly if you don't want to be, if, if you want to take what you're doing and uh, become a big, bigger company, bigger brand, um, you do need to find ways to, to take what you have and, and scale mm. that aspect to it, whether it's through team or, or through potentially technology to do that. So mm. yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. And, and every, I think every founder <laughs> struggles with that on a daily basis. <laughs> hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree. You know, even in my circle, of, you know, my network and it's, it's a very, it's a, it's very topical, right? It's like, when do you know to just let go? You know, when is it that, you know, when is that time where you can go, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by talent, by really good talent that are very good um, and that are, and that are better than me. So just like, let them do their thing. Don't get in the way. Right. Yeah. yeah I was, um, I was listening to a podcast that I can't remember exactly who it was, but they said one of the biggest learnings was getting the hell out of the way. Because the more that they were entrenched into the business, the more problems they caused, and the business yeah, yeah. just didn't grow. You know, so and that that was just a, a very interesting yeah observation. You you would deal with founders on a daily basis, just the nature of the business that you're in, right? And frankly, I mean, we're very temperamental people, right? <laughs> Where you, you need that's personalities, a, right? Yeah, that's an underestimation. Yeah, it's that's it's probably a very diplomatic way to put it, actually. <laughs> No, it's and it, interestingly as well, we, we work with founders at probably the most stressful time in their journey as well. And that's a, a time when they're publicly raising capital, which yeah. uh, would, would scare uh, most people to the point of, I say, you know, <laughs> there must be a different way to do this. But yeah. like, I think, like, yeah, the, the, I see lots of different characters and, and experience uh, in founders. Uh, when we're going through this process, but I I would like to think that I think we're uh, we're very supportive, and 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 it may be that I've been doing this for ten years, so mm. I can sort of help the the younger ones sort of see some of the pain points that I was going through, particularly in raising capital and 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 maybe scaling what they were trying to do as well. So it's it's one of the like it's it's the hardest, but it's also the most enjoyable aspect to crowdfunding and, and I mentioned this earlier like I, I love what we do and I think the team particularly the ones that are working with clients 
it's, it's bloody stressful. Like mm. um, just the, the process that we, we take founders through, but the rewards is equally just, I suppose, memorable. <laughs> mm. so. And probably enjoyable as well, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like, and rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Like every, every win for us, particularly with a successful raise, or, or even just even seeing success off the back of some of the activities that we do is, 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 is massive for us. And, and I think that's important also for building a sustainable business as well. You want clients to be successful. You want clients to be happy. Uh, happy clients bring new clients. And, and I think that builds scale, you know, for the business. I'm curious, who's the most exciting? I mean, this is a bit controversial, right? But what's like the most, who's the most exciting brand that you've worked with? Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. Because you work, um, I know you work in like so many different verticals, right? Like you do, you know, tech, you've got education, food and beverage, you know, there's, there's, it's a yeah. plethora of different industries, right? But is there like, well, actually, let me ask you this question. Is there a particular vertical? No, you're a developer, right? So I'm, I'm going to assume what it is, but is there a particular vertical that you enjoy more than, more than others? I think I, I tend to do more research in the, I suppose the fintech and the consumer fintech space. I think there's so yeah. much disruption happening um, yeah. and it's, it's changing people's lives and, and how they interact. I've always had a bit of an obsession with payments as well. Like uh, I, I look to cer certain companies more generally, like what Stripe have done, what maybe some of the consumer banks. Yeah, exactly. Airwallex, the maybe the disruptor banks in Australia, you've got up, you've got, um, you've got UK ones like Revolut. These companies are, are, are changing the game for, for quite a lot of different industries, I see, um, but particularly FinTech. But on the other side, I also love working with companies like experienced experience founders that are building brands. And, and it may be that they're building brands in an industry that's not squarely started. For example, mm. like we're, we're working with a, a client is actually our first successful raise with virtual or a, a brand called Park, Park Social. It's a, like a soccer brand. But uh, the founder of it was the creative director for Apple, actually. So Steve Jobs actually mm. hired this guy actually back and was it maybe 20 years ago. Um, wow. One of the core team members I started designing key aspects, including the packaging and things that's, uh, of the products. Um, and it's amazing hearing the stories and insight into that time. And um, it's amazing also hearing like, the, the things that you, you do generally take for granted, like uh, mm. key design aspects and, and getting that insight into what builds his own brand as well. So um, that's one standout I see, but we've, we've loads of companies and I think there's, there's lots of brands that I really admire, I see, particularly more recently the social and environmental ones. It, um, it really do resonate and I think resonate with uh, larger audiences and are actually changing the game for, for industries. Oh, when, when does a brand, I guess, you know, when do they know that it's time to probably start raising some capital? And, you know, I think there's probably a number of ways you can answer that question, right? But I think, is there a particular time where a brand goes, okay, we've done enough on our own. We now now need to go to market and start raising some cash. I reckon for me, it's whenever they know how to acquire customers. And, and I suppose it, it's, I sound like maybe from a tech perspective, like if, if I was building a brand or if I was advising somebody that was raising, a, like starting a brand, I think that you, do, you do have that investment into um, the design and the, the narrative, the messaging and, and really knowing your, 
demographic and, and maybe investing into that if you need help. But I think when it comes to scaling, I think generally the companies probably need to understand like their, their customer acquisition channels. Like where are they going to source their customers? Where are they going to, what distribution channels, particularly through digital channels, what's the most effective, what's the most cost, cost effective to be able to present that to an investor as an opportunity to invest. I think that's pretty critical. And I think if you want an experienced investors, that's, that's what you need to do. Equity crowdfunding, on the other hand, like really once you've built a following um, and you also know that you have, how would you say, you've, you've built real true fans in the brand, like that is also an opportunity to invite these people in and, and be part of that journey as well. And, and generally these people um, that are loyal, like loyal followers or loyal fans for the brand, they will, they will like really seek out that opportunity. They're probably buying loads of product or service from the company. And that's an opportunity for the company to, to invite these people in, invest a bit and potentially use that as a, as a I suppose they're, they're a future strategy um, for uh, customer acquisition. So that's maybe looking at increasing like word of mouth marketing, building that ambassador base, people that are uh, talking about the brand. Yeah, there's all of, all of the things that come from building a community of people that are really into a brand, so. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point, right? And I, as I'm sure you do as well, you know, we get, I get pitched to a lot, right? There's always someone out there with a great idea and, you know, probably the amount of pitch decks that I've seen that don't even have a acquisition methodology, approach, strategy, you know, whatever we want to call it, is baffling, right? And I, and I think to myself, so you've built a great product, but no one knows about it. And yeah, yeah. you haven't got any plans on telling anyone about it. So how are you going to sell it? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much a, a first time finder thing. Yeah. Even for me as well, like I was obsessed with the product. I wanted to get the product right. But second time, like virtual is pretty much a second opportunity for me to start again. No, it was, it was much less of a focus. Obviously, I did have people working on the product to make sure that uh, it, it stood out, the brand was strong, the design was good, user experience was hopefully uh, best, in, best in the industry. However, when it came to my day-to-day, -day, it was all about distribution. It's, it's about, okay, how do we find the first clients? Who's the best clients that are showcased for the products? All of these kind of things, it's, it's all distribution for me. Uh, so. Yeah, I, th I think it's the, it's, it's the uh, analysis by paralysis, right? Like you can, you can sit there and analyze and finesse your product or service to the cows come home, right? So you literally run out of money. And, and this happens quite a lot, right? However, there is, you know, I'm a big believer in just MVPs. Like let's go to market, prove that this actually works. Then you can finesse all you like, right? And, and I think probably a big, big learning for, for me, I guess, particularly because I've, I've been there as well, is, you know, get it to a minimal viable product, go to market, you know, acquire some customers and let the customers actually give you enough data to be able to finesse the product. Because at the end of the day, if you're sitting there trying to perfect it based on your knowledge and not based on the customer experience, then it's very one-sided, right? That's you're right. very yeah. much trying to build something based on what you know, not necessarily what the user's telling you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that was actually giving you a bit of insight into my experience, even with virtual. When we launched this, actually, we, we launched the product, we launched the service, um, we had to wait till we, we were licensed to be able to provide the service. Um, mm -hmm. But when, when we did get the license, 
like we, we did think that we had the right strategy to launch this product and this service. However, we got it wrong. We got it wrong first time. Oh. And, uh, we, we didn't get quite the, we, we were maybe using the assumptions from say the possible model into this new service of equity crowdfunding. And uh, we were getting it wrong the first time. We actually got it wrong the second time as well. So we had a field, a second deal that was, that was unsuccessful, but like that two months period. And that may sound like not a long, that, that may not sound like a long time, but when you, you spend maybe six months waiting and preparing to launch a service and you're not getting it right, you need to move pretty fast to fix it. And yeah. uh, I think for us, one of the key successes with virtual, and we, we have become the, the market leader uh, for what we do. If we hadn't fixed that within six months, we would have been dead. And it was all down to customer feedback and testing um, customer acquisition and distribution. So like, I, I would generally say, like, uh, if, you can't, if you can't make it work within six months, you're, you're not doing something right. And it's generally not the product. It's, yeah. it's more from a marketing and distribution side, yeah. Is, has there been a, like a, and, and this is, I'm a marketer, right? So I'm going to take my marketing hat off. But is there a particular channel that you find, it's, I guess it's sort of that early stages of, of, of um, a founder, you know, finding the, 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 the business. Is there a particular channel that you found works extremely well and can almost like growth hack, although I hate using that word, but like hack their way through to, you know, a, a, an acquisition strategy that doesn't cost a fortune? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what we, we generally work to within the clients that we work with is, is trying to find the most cost-effective way to market and, 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 and gain either leads or, uh, or customers or revenue for that matter, yeah. So like for us, like we, we love running experiments to test this, but you need to be mindful that you've set up everything to measure, measure yeah. everything as well, because... Like if you can't measure it and you're making assumptions, like as I mentioned with at the start of virtual, you, you do need to uh, adjust, change and tweak and make decisions and make decisions pretty, pretty quickly and critically as well. So like uh, if, for example, like we work with clients that, that may not actually find a cost-effective channel to acquire and the resulting conversation is, this is not, this is not working. But our clients generally, when we say that, as long as we give them this in a timely manner um, and be honest and open about it and have conversations about it, they, they generally take that and, the, and their feedback is, okay, thanks for letting me know early. And that's what I'm trying to instill in the team. Like we, if we, if we do make decisive changes or decisions on things, that we make them quickly and ensure that the clients still get the same level experience as the people that I see would potentially be very successful with, with customer acquisition through the platform. So, um, but yeah, like, as you say, like we, we do test and experiment with lots of different things and we, and we set up particularly with the process that we work with clients ways to do that within weeks, not months. Mm. Cause, um, like the finder's times, the finder time is precious, particularly when you're raising capital and running a company at the same time. Yeah, oh, man, that was, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It definitely resonates with me a lot. I guess what, having gone through the experience yourself, right? Like what are the, what are the, what's the one common myths, if you like, in, you know, in the industry, your industry in crowdfunding that you'd just want to knock over and debunk? In the, in the industry? 
Um, yeah, in the crowdfunding space. Okay, the myth, I think maybe the myth is that like as a huge platform, um, like with a big list, most successful, that uh, I think coming to a platform to pitch yourself, money is just waiting for you. Like uh, there's, yeah. there's <laughs> tens of thousands of people that are just waiting to see your product and service. And, uh, and they're, uh, they're all thinking the same. They're all thinking that it's time we had your product and service in the market and we're ready to buy or we're ready to invest. <laughs> so It's like unlimited cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think that's the, the biggest myth. I think that's maybe not as strong as it, as it would have been in the early days of, of possible and reward-based crowdfunding. But I do sense that there is in the startup industry, even now with equity crowdfunding, that the, the platform with the biggest list is the one that you should go to which is not the deciding factor generally. I don't mind it. I don't mind that there is that because we're the biggest in the biggest list. But at the same time, when someone asks what size is your list, I, 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 I kind of cringe. It's like, okay, this guy doesn't quite get it. So I have to start from size, scratch. Size <laughs> doesn't matter, right? Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> So true, so true. And I guess like, you know, we, we, look, we've been, it's been interesting times, right? For, for business, for consumers, for everybody on a, on a global, global scale. Have you seen, have you noticed any trends, I guess, in the crowdfunding space over the last sort of six months or, or so during COVID? I think the, the, the biggest surprise for us is like the, the engagement by retail investors, actually. Like uh, I find it really inspiring to see people actually get behind these companies, even local Australian companies that are maybe early stage and uh, in investing and supporting them. I think there was a, a degree of this, particularly shortly after April, after March and April, I think there was that support local. And it did, I feel, uh, resonate on the platform for investment. And, and I feel like obviously with the trends of, of technology, it's helped. Like we're one of these platforms and companies that that may have actually been, been nice, like have come out of it better than, than, than a lot of industries. So, mm. um, and like obviously engaging people online, um, which is probably more cost-effective yeah. for a lot of ways, um, getting people engaged on video, engaged in learning more about investment opportunities as well, um, maybe investing for the first time. And that's across the board, actually. Like I think even we see like the retail markets for investing into even listed companies as they see a bit of a surge. So I, I think more generally, I, I feel like there's definitely been a, a bit of a shift, particularly for the younger generation to be mindful of, I suppose, the literacy and, and financial products um, mm. and, and really experiment and, and try things actually. Yeah, which is an interesting one. I mean, <clears throat> I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's never invested before and frankly, doesn't really know much about investing in, in general. And he's like, Rob, you know, I've got $2,000 and I want to put them into something. What do you recommend? I don't know, dude, I can talk to you about this till the cows come home, right? You know, like at the end of the day, you know, my advice to him was invest in what you know and do your due diligence and do your research, right? That was my advice to him. I said, I can tell you if that investment flops, you're going to come back to me and say, and if you, I threw all my money into that because you told me to and it didn't, didn't succeed. I said, look, at the end of the day, like you need to do your due diligence and understand what it is you're buying and why, right? What, what, what would be your advice, Alan? You know, like if I was to ask you that question. 
Yeah, yeah, I get this from friends all the time as well. <laughs> I run a platform that's to get to at least a few deals up every uh, any one time. Yeah, you're, you're that guy, right? That. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me like, give me some inside information. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I I really do think it's like as you say, like for early stage investing, um, it's and it's easy for us to talk to this as well. Like, you generally will look to the finders in terms of their experience or their execution history to be able to sort of guide you on whether these people are investable. Um, also the, the industry size. I, I generally have a few T's, I say, my T's of evaluating them companies. And I even do this, like I even consider this when I'm talking to a, a new prospect um, that's, that's looking to raise capital. I, I run through the T's and the, my T's are the team, the target market, target market size. So I look at uh, traction. So it's like what have they actually succeeded with? Like, and how do they measure traction as well? Um, so do they measure it through customers, customer numbers, revenues? Is it, for example, even just a, a partnership or an agreement with a, a big distributor? All of these things. Uh, and then you get um, timing as well. Like, I think timing has been a big thing for, for me as a business. So I look at potentially the, the timing of that opportunity. So um, then, then remember my four teams. There's there's another three more, four but I'll not, I'll, not talk, I'll not cover the other. These are the four basic <laughs> ones for me. Yeah, but after that, um, it gets into listed markets, and uh, yeah, you, you wonder how these companies are valued through the, the traditional kind of financial metrics, but um, particularly tech companies. But anyway, it's 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 well, a let, let, let's game, go yeah. there for a couple of. Let's go there for a couple of minutes, right? Because I'm always fascinated by how some of these evaluations happen, right? I'm like baffled, right? So I know there's this, you know, plethora of different equations and formulas and, you know, and, and valuation metrics in general for how you can value a company, right? But, you know, in tech, sometimes it's a multiple of whatever X it is of revenue. And sometimes it's a multiple of whatever it is of EBIT if you're in a service-based space. But do you find that there's a typical, I guess, formula that is... I guess more widely used than than another. Uh, that's a very good question, actually. Like I, I generally see, for example, um, quite a few of the models when it comes to high growth companies, and it may not necessarily be a startup. Like some of the highest growth companies, I see are not necessarily tech companies, actually. So in terms of valuing these businesses, like I would, I would generally look at at, at growth figures, like a, mm-hmm. and and see that like forecasting is, is sustainable growth. Because at some point they need to, um, these companies need to be evaluated against their profit. Like, and I know that a lot of tech companies are still like uh, on revenues, but for example, in the future they need to be making money somewhere, and that needs Otherwise to be it becomes a charity, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but like, is it? It's it's hard to evaluate because like like I've lived through. Amazon's growth from a very early stage, seeing it in the UK when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16. Um, these companies never made profits, but if, if you look at what volumes, how they've been strategic in different areas and industries, particularly in mm. AWS and, and the likes, you, you pretty much have to throw out all of these here kind of traditional finance models because at the end of the day, they're, they're actually pretty much owning certain categories, for example, e-commerce in general. So, and if they're in a growth industry and they're growing above where the growth of that industry is, like we're, we're talking very substantial size of industries. And yeah. as, I, as I mentioned earlier, like one of my ways to evaluate companies is, is on the size of the market, size of the opportunity. 
like I think if it was to start again, and if it was a blank canvas, I wouldn't be starting about ideas. I would be starting in large industries, if that makes sense. And yeah, solving, solving, solving a problem within a very big industry. Yeah. In fact, I've got a, uh, a little platform that I'm working on. It's a bit of a side, side project. Remind me to speak to you about it because I reckon this thing's got some legs. It's a, I reckon it might even be a valley play if I play my cards right. Oh, so, big industry then, yeah. Well, it's it? substantial. <laughs> I'll be taking <laughs> yeah. on the big. I'll be taking on the big L, all right, LinkedIn. But yeah, let me. Uh, we can even have a chat about this quickly post post the call, Kim, to get your thoughts on it. But yeah, like I mean, you raise a very interesting point. I mean, you know, looking at us as an example, impressive as a digital agency, we've got, you know, we're a service based business. Typically, we will get valued at a, you know, three, four, five, maybe multiple off EBIT, if you know, depending on, on who we're talking to. And the industry and, and previous previous sales, you attach a proprietary platform or a piece of tech that you've developed, all of a sudden that multiple skyrockets. Right, yeah, so yeah. again, is it like a you a tech company or you're a service based business, right? It's it's hard to value a company that has, I guess, from, anyway, from my experience, that has a you know a, a piece of tech which is you know um, proprietary to them and even catch i mean catch got a multiple of like 200 and whatever it was right <laughs> it was yeah. it was an insane amount and if you break that up it's due to a proprietary piece of software that they've built internally and everything else in between right the fact that west farmers wanted to buy them the database and you know and, and and the rest but they weren't a very profitable business that's right, right? yeah so yeah. you know i think I think, yeah, to, to add to that, there's so many different ways you can sort of slice and dice it at the end of the day. It's really, it's who you're getting into bed with and how much they're willing to pay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or yeah. even like the cost of playing in the space, you know, like this is the thing. Like, if, for example, what would someone pay to play in the, the space of Amazon? Like, yeah. a, okay, we're, we're talking, okay, we're, maybe that's a bad example because we're talking about the most expensive company. <laughs> but, but I mean, no one, no one could afford to play in the space or could build and compete with Amazon without spending potentially like a half a billion or sorry, $500 billion or billion dollars to get to the point of where they are now. Does that make sense? It would raise the question. I mean, would you even bother? You know, well, like, that's it. Nobody would. Yeah, this is a big right? I, I, it's, it's almost like a, it's, it's an industry. I mean, it, there's multiple industries under Amazon, right? That you wouldn't even financially, I think in commercial, like it just makes no sense to even go there, right? Um, yeah, you, you're yeah. taking on a, 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 a giant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, and, and also like if, if, for example, right, Amazon stayed with just books, they sold books online, like that industry would be a certain, of a certain size. They would expand globally and the, the book retailing space would have been worth i don't know how many hundreds say so many hundred million maybe even a, a few billion actually in terms of a market size and say amazon took 20 percent of that that would have told you how much potential revenues and profit they would see based on gross margins and all of these things in that space but amazon went into a different category and then pretty much have taken e-commerce as a, as a market and also then they went into the services of of uh, pretty much the uh, infrastructure for all websites. Mm. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, so when you start to build all of these here, different businesses up that are very scalable, as you say, it, it, be, it does become incredibly valuable. Maybe not so much at that point in terms of profit, but really how can you shift them? How can you, how can you displace them? Like it would take- Well, then you, it, it, becomes a monopoly. it becomes a monopoly, right? And you've got levers. Right, you can essentially pull levers that can really shift 
a whole category or a whole industry because you, you you dominate that particular space and you because you own so much of it you know you make one little shift it could literally shift the entire category <laughs> right that's right um, yeah. so it gives you it gives you full control over it yeah. As, as a marketplace, it's uh, it's it's the uh, the law of marketplaces. You need to be if you want to be in a profitable position in the future. You need to pretty much dominate, like uh, or at least have a very sizable market share in that industry. Yeah. So here's a lot. I'll, I'll, I promise this is the last question I'll throw at you. Right. If I gave you a million bucks right now, what would you do with it? What would I do with it? Um, as an investor, <laughs> I would make <laughs> it. I would make it a very, how would you say, this diversified portfolio of high growth businesses. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's the, the typical answer if I was to advise anyone. Um, <laughs> what, what would I do with a million bucks? Like, I, I think as a founder, any founder would probably say the same, invest it in yourself, invest it in the business. If you've got the opportunity to see a growth trajectory for your opportunity and invest it all in yourself yeah invest it into the business invest it into the skills and experience that you've hopefully got and you want to build out so for me a million bucks i'll go straight into uh, the next milestone yeah next the next milestone yeah yeah i i like that i mean i'll do the same i'll gamble it on myself right (laughs) (laughs) you know i'll throw it on myself Oh man, that's been, um, it's been a pleasure. Seriously. Thank you very much for, for, for your time. And, um, in all seriousness, yeah, I might even give you a call post this and just have a chat, you know, Absolutely, this, yeah, yeah. this pl- platform that I'm, that I'm thinking about. How do, how do our audience get in touch? You know, like how do they connect with you? Where can they find you? You can find me very easily on LinkedIn, but otherwise, yeah, just email me on Alan at, uh, possible.com or Alan at virtual.com. Yeah. Incredibly easy to find me, yeah. <laughs> Very easy to find. I oh, know, you just got to jump on LinkedIn, put your name in, and there, the first one. Awesome. But, uh, Thanks, yeah, Al. Really, Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was really nice to chat, I see. Yeah, enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, bud. Appreciate it.